So when you are caught in sin, how do you react? When you are caught lashing out in anger and yelling again, how do you react? When that thing that you promised you'd never do again because you hate doing it pops up in your life and you find yourself doing it again, how do you react? What do you do? When someone who loves you sees you once again running towards sin and they call you out, what do you do? How do you react? Do you run and hide in shame? Do you shake your fist at God and say, forget you, I'm doing this anyways? Do you cry out to God? Today we're starting a new series, Summer in the Psalms. Last year we looked at Proverbs, and we we looked at the first nine chapters of Proverbs. And then I looked at chapter 10 as I was preparing for this summer, and the first nine, they're very cohesive, it tells a story, it's it's Saul laying out the arguments for Proverbs, and then chapter 10 starts and it, it actually gets proverbial and uh, it gets very difficult to preach through, so I thought, no, we won't do that. But summer in the Psalms. So this, we're going to take about eight weeks out, and we're going to look at the Psalms. And we're going to start off in book four, or book four. I know that sounds weird. Maybe we should start in book one. I don't know. But we're gonna, if you don't know the Psalms, there's five books in the Psalms. So at one point, an editor got together. Most theologians think it was during the exile. They got together, the editors got together, and they started making books of the Psalms. They started organizing the Psalms. Psalm 90 starts book four, and that's where we're going to start off. They're not all going to have the same theme. So this week, we're going to look at what happens. How should we react when we're in the midst of the consequences of our sin? Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 90. There's 17 verses. It's not too long. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning, In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. 
Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So I like to outline this a little bit that verse 1 and 2 is the psalmist showing God's power, describing God's power. And then we get into verses 3 and 4, and it shows us God's authority over man. Sorry, I should go four all the way 3 through 6. Then we get into 7 all the way through 11 is going to be humanity's frailty. God's power, who God is, God's power, who humans are, who the creation is. And then we get into what our appropriate response should be. So that's how I would outline this. If we look at at the heading here, so an interesting little fact is in the Hebrew Bible, the uh, headings are actually uh, numbered. So verse 1 starts with a prayer of Moses, the man of God. In our English translations, uh, we don't typically put the numbers there. So that's a heading, a prayer of Moses. So this was most likely pinned by Moses during the 40 years of wandering. Now what's interesting about this, just to get a little bit of background, and I think it will really help us understand. So Moses was the man of God, right? And Moses, he grew up in Pharaoh's home, and then he, he finds out that he's a Jew, and what does he do? He kills an Egyptian He thinks he can cover it up. He learns that it's not covered up. And so what does he do? He runs. He runs and he hides. And from that point forward, Moses doesn't have a true home. That's important for us to know. But then God uses him to free the Jews from Egypt. He brings them out. And after this generation witnesses the Exodus, they witness all of these miracles that bring them to the Exodus. And then they witness the, the parting of the Red Sea. They witness these miracles of God. Then they get to the promised land and they send spies in. And what happens? Oh, you know that God that just took on the most powerful nation in the world for us? He's not going to win this fight for us, so let's just give up. Let's just go back to Egypt and die, guys. That God, that God that took on the most powerful nation, that God that demonstrated his might for us? Nah, he's no good. And so God, what God does then is he says, okay, this generation that witnessed my might, that witnessed my power, you're going to have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Until this generation dies off, you will wander. You'll roam around without a home. Moses is going to pin this psalm during that time. But what's interesting is if we think about the editors and the editing process, this psalm comes right at the beginning of book four, which means it comes right after the ending of book three, right? So to understand this psalm, and, and I think it gives us some great insight to understand what's going on here during the exile, is it comes off the hills of 89. Now, the the Psalm 89 is all about, God, can we trust you still? So it's written after the line of David is believed to be cut off. And so you have to understand that uh, God comes to David 
in Samuel, and he tells him, hey, David, I, I'm going to make you a covenant. And this covenant goes like this. It's, it's what's called a unilateral covenant, meaning it's not dependent on what David does or what David's children do. It's all dependent upon God. God is going to make this thing happen. And he says to David, I am going to make a kingdom out of you that will have no end, and your children will forever reign on this kingdom. That's the promise. And so the, the Israelites go through their dynasty, go through the years of even civil war, holding on to this promise that God has made to David that, that there will always be someone from the line of David on the throne. And then Babylon comes. Babylon totally wipes out Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. And they believe they've wiped out the line of David. The people that were editing and writing the Psalms at the time believed the same thing. And so Psalm 89 is a call out to God like, Hey God, do you remember your promise to us? You told us we'd be a kingdom forever. You told us you'd give us Jerusalem forever. And here we are in Babylon, exiles. We have no home. The promise you made, where is that, God? That's the ending of book three. And then we pick up book four with 89. And, and we can see that it's, Ab or it's Moses calling out to God. God. What are you doing here? We're just wandering in the wilderness. And the exile's like, God, what's going on here? But the truth is, both Moses and that generation and the exiles were suffering the consequences of their sin. Because there was a faithless generation that said, no, God, we don't trust you. We saw the might. We saw the power. We still don't trust you. And then with the exiles, when, when God made the, the covenant with Moses, he said, if you guys follow me and if you guys obey me, I'm going to bless you. But if you don't, you are my representative on this earth. And if you don't follow me, if you don't obey me, but you turn and you worship other gods, I'm going to raise up a nation to conquer you. So both groups are feeling the consequences of their sin. They're feeling the consequences of their rebellion. And it is in that that we get the context of chapter 90. But I think it's good for us to also examine the consequences of our rebellion, the consequences of our sin. Although we know we can look towards Paul and his writings, and we know that once we're saved, we're always saved, we can look at his writings and we can know that even though I mess up, I'm declared righteous and justified and holy, there are still consequences to my sin. There are still things that happen in my life because of my rebellion against God. And this is how we need to respond to that. So it's a prayer of Moses. The man of God. What's interesting here is that God here is Elohim, meaning that it's the supreme being. So he's, they're emphasizing that God is the supreme being. And he starts it off with Lord, which is Adonai, meaning my master. And it's, it is emphasizing God's authority over us. But it's also given this little play of there's this master and slave relationship here. And a good master would take care of his slave. 
take care of his servant, Moses. So he's calling out as this one who is looking towards his master, but as a servant and saying, hey, are you going to take care of us? Lord, you have been our dwelling place. This term dwelling place is literally an animal's lair, and it's a, it's a uh, reference to a place of refuge and a place of safety. So you have been our place of refuge. You have been our place of safety in all generations. And this is such a cool little idea right here because if you think all the way back to Abraham, Abraham didn't have a home. He was called out to be a sojourner, to wonder his whole life. And even when he gets to the promised land, God tells him, hey, Abraham, you're not going to get this land. This is going to come to your, gen- to, to your family generations later. 400 years later, actually, is when your, your family is going to call this place home. You don't get to call this place home. But then Moses is wandering in the wilderness. And then you think about the exiles who are no longer in Jerusalem. They no longer get the comforts of their home. They no longer get the the smells and the food, the sounds that, that are familiar. And yet, they look to God and they say, God, you are our dwelling place. You are our place of safety. You are our place of security. You are our home. I think it's easy for us in our culture, to make our home here. We just got back from vacation, and I'll tell you, it was good to be home. I mean, I really loved vacation. We, we took a road trip out to Nebraska. We were on the road. We, we were having fun. We went to a camp with a lake and a waterfront, and we went tubing, and we went on a blob, which is, if you want to hear the excitement of a blob, ask my oldest son, what the blob is and how much fun he had on the blob. But, but it, it was amazing. It was so much fun. We were busy. We were going hard. Man, it was good to sleep in our own bed. Even though the room we had in Nebraska had air conditioning and our home here doesn't, I still sleep better here in my own bed. And we understand that, right? We look, what we think of home is where we find comfort. I also think of that song that says, home is wherever I am with you, Right? I think about that with Jen, and we've, we've said that to each other a couple times. So how do you define home? I think that'd be a good conversation piece on your drive home today, on your drive home today. How do you define home? What is it you look for in a home? We invest in our home. We build in our home. We just, uh, just took several weeks to make our front yard this really incredible place for our baby girl to play. So we laid down AstroTurf and put in a play set and then a baby gate so she couldn't escape. We invest in our homes. We look, and it's easy for us as Americans to start to believe that my home is here in Flagstaff. And that's the place I start to look for safety and security. But Moses here is saying, God, you are a place of refuge. It's important for us to remind ourselves of that. Because this home can be burned. This home can be taken. We can become exiles as well. But the thing that they can never take from us is that God is our place of safety. God is our place of security. And when we turn towards him for our home, we feel true peace, true safety, true security. So he's our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. 
And here we see this word again, El, meaning supreme being. You are the supreme being. You were, and he's just describing how great God is, right? You were there who brought forth the mountains. When you think about what are things that bring awe into your mind, we just drove through the Rocky Mountains. I love the San Francisco peaks. They bring awe to my mind, but they're really nothing when you drive down the I-70 corridor, right? When you're driving in those, next to those 14ers in Colorado, it brings awe. So he's saying, hey, look, you're the creator. You're the one. The, the term here brought forth is actually birthed. You're the one who birthed these mountains. And I think about ladies, that might become a little bit more pregnant with meaning. <laughs> Thanks for the chuckle there. All right, or, or ever you had formed the earth and the world. So everything in the world, God has made. He is the creator. It's important for us to remember that. From everlasting to everlasting. And this term everlasting is really end of vision line, is what that it literally means, is the end of vision line. Now, in the mountains here, it's hard for us to have that end of vision line, right? In Nebraska, Brent was just talking to me about this because they took a trip through Nebraska as well. In Nebraska, he was pointing out to his kids, look, you can actually see the curve of the earth because it's so flat. That's what the idea is here. Like you can see so far that your eyes can't see anything anymore. When you hike to the top of the peaks or even Mount Eldon and you look out and you, you just see, you can see the curve of the earth and you see as far as your eyes can see, that's the end of your vision line. It's from that end of your vision line, which means it goes on forever, past that vision line, back in the past. And you look forward past that vision line in the future. That's the picture that we're getting of God here. We have this fine timeline for us. I can tell you when I was born. I can't remember it, but my parents can. I can't tell you when I'm going to die, but I know I will. There is no end to God. He is past our vision line. He is the supreme being. And he goes on to talk about his authority. You return man to dust. Now, this is literally, you crush men. And it's a reference back to Genesis 3, after the, the original sin. And God tells, from dust you came and dust you will return. And it's this idea that God has his authority over us. When we rebel and sin against God, he can crush us. If we continue to rebel, he can crush us. But what's interesting is the next line, and say, return, O children of man. So the idea of crushing is this idea of discipline. God can discipline whom he loves. He disciplines us oftentimes through natural consequences. My sin produces natural consequences. That is a discipline of God. But the, the end result is return. The first step in repentance is turning back towards God. Turning away from sin and turning towards God. That's the first step of repentance. God's discipline is never punitive. He doesn't discipline us just to make us suffer. He doesn't discipline us just so that we will feel pain. God's discipline is always corrective. He wants us to turn away from our sin and rebellion that produces destruction and turn towards him. For a thousand years are in your, are in your sight are but 
as yesterday when it is past, or as the wa- a watch in the night. A watch in the night is about four hours. And so what he's getting at here is, once again, just like from vision line to vision line, God is everlasting. And because he is everlasting, he has a greater perspective than us. When I think about this, I think about our kids who, you know, when they're sitting down and waiting for something, five minutes seems like an eternity. Well, they don't have a whole lot of perspective. My six-year-old has six years under his belt. And so when he looks back at five minutes, that seems long. If he's looking back a year, that's one-sixth of his life. For me, I'm 41. One year, all of a sudden, doesn't feel like a whole lot of time. In fact, Jen and I were just talking about babies, and uh, we were talking about how it's like one year. Man, it's nothing now. I can do one year. But I remember being 15 and waiting for my license and thinking, good night, is this year ever going to be over? Am I ever going to be able to drive? When you're young, you just lack that perspective. Our 80-year-olds, our senior saints, have a huge amount of perspective. I love to listen to their perspective. But that 80 years is nothing compared to God. He's got this perspective. For a thousand years are in your sight. So let's think back. And this is another great opportunity to talk through uh, on your drive home. Let's think back through your lifetime. September 11th, 2001. That seems like a long time ago now. Was that? Almost 20 years. We're coming up on 20 years. And then think back even more. The first Gulf War. That's just my lifetime. Now let's start talking about what are some of our senior saints' experience. The Korean War. World War II. There's not many people left who remember World War II. I don't think anyone left that remembers World War I. That was only 100 years ago. It goes by so quick. Now let's think back 1,000 years. 1,000 years America didn't even, the United States of America didn't even exist yet. Most historians believe that the Navajo weren't even in this area a thousand years ago, a thousand AD. They don't believe that. I mean, think about that. When I think of the Navajo, I think of so rooted and grounded in this area. They weren't even here yet. I mean, a thousand years, it's something that our minds don't, we can't even really comprehend. And yet, For God, it's like a night watch. It's a four-hour shift. It's no big deal. He's got that perspective. You sweep them away as with a flood. The you here is those who are rebelling against him. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. And what it's getting at here is that there are so many things that we think are a big deal, that are powerful. We, we think of like Egypt, that was the most powerful nation in the world at the time of Moses. And yet how many dynasties did we see rise and fall in Egypt? That's what he's getting at here. These, these, uh, the grass that flourishes. Every morning it flourishes. It's renewed. And we think, man, that grass is going to stick. But by evening it fades. Empires come and empires go. And not just empires, but ideologies, philosophies. We think what we're struggling with in America today is something new. It's nothing new. 
These are recycled ideas that they come and they spring up and they look strong and they look like they're going to last forever and then they die off. But God still outlasts them. When you think about that, just think about that eternal perspective. What we are struggling with right now seems so overwhelming. There are ideologies that seem like they're grabbing root and they're going to stick. They might be here for a lifetime, but they'll go. But God will last. Think about all the ideologies, all the philosophies that have developed, fallen apart, recreated themselves, and come back in the lifetime of Christianity. 2,000 years. Communism is nothing new. 2,000 years, it's come, back, it's come popped up and faded away. And yet, God's word continues to spread, and continues to change lives. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. For you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, and the light of your presence. And so we see at this point that he was the, Moses was pointing his finger at all these people that have lived in rebellion against God and how God can wipe them away. And at this point, he begins to point his finger at himself. It is really easy for us to point our finger at all the rebellious ideologies, all the rebellious empires, and yet it's really difficult to turn that finger around and say, but wait. God sees my iniquities too. Iniquities is simply evil behavior. Each one of us here have evil behavior at some point in our lives. Most likely, you had some kind of evil behavior, something that went against God's standard even this morning. I mean, it's just so difficult. So not is it only our iniquities, but also our secret sins. We all have these little secret sins that we think we can keep covered up, that we think we can hide. And oftentimes they're like little pets, you know, we, we think they're cute, they're not harming anyone. Oh, my cute little secret sin, and sometimes I even hear people joking about it. This little thing, it, it's so cute, and it's my secret sin, and, and I keep it to myself, because it's just so cute. But God brings it to light. God knows your secret sin, and to him it's not cute. Because he knows the devastation and destruction that that secret sin will eventually bring about. There is no sin that is consequentless. Every sin has consequence to it. God knows that. He knows your secret sin. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil, toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Now consider the author and editor. There is lament and the consequences of their sin. They see the devastation that this sin has brought about. 
Moses sees the wondering. And, and just imagine as he's wandering through the desert and his generation begins to die off. One by one, he sees his friends who could have very easily entered into the promised land. One by one, they die. I can remember my grandparents when his last brother died and how it affected him, how it impacted him. He felt very alone. And this is how Moses must have felt as well. He sees the impact of sin. And now think about the exile. Living a good life in Jerusalem until Babylon comes. And now they're out. They've been pulled away to be slaves back in Babylon. They are lamenting here. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. And I think of sin always comes in feeling good, doesn't it? That first little tweak of sin, it just gives you a shot of adrenaline. It gives you a shot of dopamine. It just kind of feels good. That's why it's so enticing. And yet it ends like a sigh. Sin starts off feeling good and ends with a sigh of desperation. Man, if only this is what my life has become. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your your wrath according to the fear of you? And the way that this is phrased, it's, it's kind of like an if only. If only we considered. If only we had thought about this beforehand, God. If only we had considered that you take sin seriously, maybe we wouldn't be in this mess anymore. Verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So what's the end result? If, if we had thought about this, if we, had, if we had put some thought into how serious you take sin, God, what, what would have been my reaction? What would have I, I, I had been crying out for. And the first part is, teach us to number our days. Help us recognize that that we don't live forever. That even at 80 years, that's not a lot of time. It goes by in a blink of an eye. Young people, listen to me. Your life will be over before you know it. Sombering, isn't it? There's a reason why why Psalm 90 is oftentimes read at funerals. Because your life is over so soon. So so when you number your days, when you recognize that, you don't waste time. The idea here of numbering our days isn't just so that I know when I'm going to die. It's let me make the most of my life now. Help me not to waste my days. But make the most of every day. Make every day count. That we may get a heart of wisdom. Wisdom is simply applied knowledge. I love the saying, you know, uh, knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in fruit salad. I also, uh, squash is another one that most people don't know is a fruit. Yes, it is a fruit. But you don't put that in fruit salad, right? That's applied knowledge. You take your knowledge 
and then you start to apply it. Return, O Lord, how long? So the end result is crying out to God, return to be a place of this refuge. Return to be a place of safety for me. Help me to turn back to you. O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our day. What often pulls us away from God is this idea that whatever sin it is is going to be what satisfies us. That's what's usually pulling us away from God. We think that this certain sin is going to satisfy. How many men have I known that have left their wives because they found another woman and they thought that woman would satisfy them? And a year later, they're complaining about that same woman that was supposed to be the one who would satisfy. Sin never satisfies. It only leaves you feeling empty. So the cry out here is, Satisfy us, Lord, with your steadfast love. Help us to rejoice and be glad. Help us to recognize that, God, you're the only one that will truly satisfy. You are our home, you are our refuge, and you are what satisfy us. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Even in the midst of the affliction that they are going through, they recognize that God is the one who provides joy. God is the one that satisfies. Moses, wandering through the wilderness, can still be satisfied. The exiles in Babylon can still be satisfied. Yesterday at men's breakfast, if you haven't attended men's breakfast, I want to encourage you to. Somebody talked about Daniel. Wanting the book of Daniel is so good, but he wanted the how-to. And I think that's so right. Like, how does Daniel do what he's doing in exile? And yet he does it. And I think one of those how-tos is Paul, who writes, he has learned in everything to be content. And he writes that in prison. It's because he's turned towards God. And he's letting God be the one who gives him satisfaction. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And what I think he's getting at here is God can still use us. God wastes nothing. You might be in the midst of the consequences for some horrible sin. God can still use you. He can still establish the work of your hand. He can still show you favor. There's nothing too jacked up in this world that God can't use. He can use you still. You might be suffering through horrible consequences because of sin. You might have gone through a streak of rebellion in your life where you shook your fist at God and said, forget you, God, I'm going to do things my way. And you are now feeling the consequences of that. When you turn from your sin, cry out to God and say, God, I've messed up. Lord, help me to find satisfaction in you. He doesn't make all of the consequences go away. But he sure can use them for his glory 
and for your good and for the good of others. So how do you respond when you're caught in your sin? How do you respond when you're feeling the consequences of your sin? Do you run and hide in shame? Or do you turn towards God and say, Lord, I need you. Satisfy me with your love. Dear Lord, we thank you that you do not leave us to our sin. You don't leave us in our rebellion. But you discipline us. You discipline us so that we would turn back to you, that we'd cry out to you. And Lord, we pray that you would hear us in our cry. Help us to cry out, Lord. Satisfy us with your love. And as you satisfy with us, us with your love. Help us to submit to you, to be used by you. In your name we pray.